0: Hello and welcome, everybody, to episode 3 of JR Plays. Before I begin, I want to say thanks to listener and SoundCloud artist Josh Crow for making the intro music that you just heard and the outro music you'll hear later on. Thanks a lot, Josh. I really appreciate your effort. If you guys like that sound and want to learn more about what Josh does, go to soundcloud.com slash That's J-O-S-H-K-R-O-W. This week saw fewer games played as I had a trip to Chicago for a wedding, but I did manage to get in some games with old friends that I hadn't seen in quite some time. And this week you'll get to hear a little bit about my origin story as a board game player since Chicago is the place where that hobby started for me. Before I left for the week, I did get a chance to play Seafall. I also played an Attack online tournament. In Chicago, I played Patchwork of Luxem, Via Nebula, Betrayal at House on the Hill, and Codenames. Only one new game for me this week. It was Via Nebula, designed by Martin Wallace and published by Space Cowboys. This was a Gen Con release, and it was the only game at Gen Con that I wanted to get that I wasn't able to because it was sold out too quickly for me to get my hands on a copy when I checked on Saturday. It's a pretty cool little resource acquisition and management game where you thematically are fantasy companies in a little fantasy world trying to explore and reclaim a valley that was previously owned by monsters and is now covered in fog until you go disperse the fog and then build buildings and create pathways for resources to move around and such. I enjoyed it. I played it with Dan and with Rose and with Jacob. It took us about an hour and 45 minutes to play with teaching and talking and taking our time. The box game time is an hour, and I think if we played it again with four players, that's about how long it would take. I thoroughly enjoyed it. The art is fantastic. Uh, the theme is interesting, but it's also tacked on. This is absolutely an abstract game of just moving resources around hexes and building things. But it's pretty cool to see the art, and the names of the buildings are kind of funny. Like There's one where you're like flying fog around and picking something up with a big hot air balloon and moving it around. So that's really cool. I did not win this game. Actually, Rose won the game with 26 points, and I think their range of scores is from 19 to 26, which seemed to be about right, given what we did. In the game, you prioritize trying to build buildings. In fact, the player who builds their fifth building first uh, gets a two-point bonus and initiates the end of the game where everyone else gets a turn. And you're trying to build buildings. You're trying to uncover new foggy areas so that you can further explore and get points for that. You're trying to exploit certain resources on the board by taking the tiles and replacing those resources. And those resources can be used by any players. And I think that was the thing about the game that interests me the most, is sending my worker to go and exploit an area on the board, then hoping that other players would want to build buildings near me so that I would get my worker back. Because once you exploit something, you put some number of resources, either three or four, down on the board. And until each of those resources have been picked up off the board and used by somebody, you don't get your worker back, and you only have two. That's one of the primary ways to get points in the game. I guess it's probably the second most points you'll get just from exploiting, because the buildings are the most points you'll get. And I pursued a strategy that was all about that. By building a building, that gave me an extra point for each one of those exploitation tokens I took during the game. It ended up being kind of worth it. I got four tokens at the end of the game. But it was cool. It was a neat experience. I'm glad that I got to pursue a strategy and see it come to fruition. Even though I didn't win, I feel like I played pretty well. So that was via Nebula. I would play it again. I think that it is a interesting game. I think that if you're looking for... Whimsical. It's probably not for you. Even though it looks whimsical, it definitely is a little resource allocation game. But the rules are very simple, and there are very few exceptions in the game. So you can kind of just play, and it'll be very clear to you what you can do. All your actions are laid on your player board. All your pieces are right there. It's really well done. It fits into the Space Cowboys mold of making games that are pretty, that are in some sense abstract, like Splendor, and that are very easy to teach and play. So big fan of that one. I will say, though, Via Nebula is the wrong name for this game. Uh, We talked about it at length after the game. I have no idea why they called this game Via Nebula, other than the fact that it's like the Nebula Valley. The word never comes up during the game. There's no sense of, like, building roads or anything. I guess you're kind of, like, connecting patches so you can move resources around. But it doesn't feel that way thematically. I really think they missed on the name Via Nebula, especially for a game from Martin Wallace. So I wish they'd named it differently. But I own it, and I will play it, so that's great. Before I left for Chicago, we did our weekly game of Seafall, or at least our bi-weekly game of Seafall, because it's tough to get this group together, with my wife Amy, with Aldi, Scott Alton from BoardGameGeek, and Troy Atlington, another friend here locally, was our third game of Seafall, the prologue games one and game two. And uh, I'll give no spoilers here, I'll just say that we've unlocked one box of content in the game. It's not a spoiler. Amy kicked the crap out of us again, and in both games that we've kept score, Amy has won by a wide margin. I think she's now winning something like 27 to 12 to 10 to 9. Uh, It's because she's the one who is most willing to raid everybody. She is a pirate at heart, a little barbarian with four axes at all times and knives in every pocket. She has no problem whatsoever talking trash, starting noise, raiding people and taking their stuff, and she's definitely getting rewarded for that. But I think she's going to start to learn about the enmity system and how other players can kind of take advantage of her aggression early by doing some things to her later. Uh, I did work on Seafall, I was Rob's developer for this game, uh, Seafall designed by Rob Davio and published by Plathead Games and F2Z. So I'm trying to play as though I don't know what's going to happen, I picked a character that was all about exploration, and I'm trying to thematically do those things and not necessarily pursue victory, but rather play kind of a in-the-game DM, facilitating the game, making sure it happens correctly and making everyone else have fun while also doing good enough plays that the integrity of the game stays in place. And I'm having a great time doing it. It's really fun to watch these guys play. It feels a lot like when we play tested the game last summer, only the game is in a better place now. So it's really cool to see it shine on the table. So that is Seafall, and I would say more about it, but obviously spoilers are in play. If you want to learn more about Seafall, check it out on BoardGameGeek. When I got to Chicago, the first thing that I did when I got to Dan and Rose's apartment, which is where Amy and I stayed for the wedding this weekend, was bust out Patchwork and play Patchwork with Rose on the couch ottoman there in their apartment with Dan, her husband, and one of my best friends. Uh, and Rose is a very good friend, too. So they're both very good friends. Uh, with Wicket, their dog, and with a bunch of waffles, which are little caramel cookies that their dog adores. And waffles played a role in this game as I was distracted by their dog pursuing the waffles from my hand. These little caramel cookies, which were delicious, uh, distracted me from optimal patchwork plays. And Rose was able to take me down 14 to 12 in this game. Uh, because of waffles and Wicket's interference. Jokes aside, Rose played a great game. It was her first time playing Patchwork, and what a wonderful two-player game. I know that I haven't talked about Patchwork yet on the show. It is, I think, my favorite two-player game from 2015, and in my collection as far as only two-player games, it's absolutely one of my very favorite. I prefer it over the Tides of Time series, which I also adore. I prefer it over Imminent Domain Microcosm, which is also a very good two-player little card game. Patchwork just has a certain timeless quality, And it's so easy to teach. It's language independent. You don't have to really think about what you're doing if you don't want to. You can play it at the level of grandmother enjoying a holiday party or the level of competitive gamer doing math to figure out how to build your engine, your button engine. The only weird thing about this game is that there are buttons on quilts. And if somebody can explain that to me, I'd really appreciate that. But it was great to get to play a game with Rose. Um, I'll tell the story now. Dan and Rose are friends of mine from Chicago. I lived there five years ago. And they're the ones who introduced me to hobby board games. In fact, Rose's custom copy of Settlers of Catan, which is made out of Legos that she and her father made together, was the first hobby board game I ever played. Before that, I was a Magic player, which is how I met Dan. Rose taught me Settlers of Catan, and then Dan and Rose taught me Betrayal at House on the Hill, which remains one of my very favorite games. And from there, it was a downhill slide to what I do now, which is board games all the time. So it's really nice to go back and play games with these people that were very special in my life, and still very special to catch up with them and get to enjoy the context of gameplay with him. The next day, we enjoyed Bob's bachelor party, which included a outing to Whirly Ball, which is not a board game, but is still an excellent occupation, playing basically lacrosse on bumper cars on a basketball court as fast as you can. It's really, really fun. After that, we went to Phil and Chow, did the whole bachelor party thing, and we ended up back at our buddy Pranks' house. And Pranks is notable for being a recorder of rpg podcasts and also being a huge star wars fan including having every single x-wing miniature in his house on his table when we got to his place really cool to see that it's always nice to see somebody who has the same nerdy tendencies when it hits tabletop gaming who has the same kind of collections even if it's not quite board games it's x-wing minis instead it's still nice to see that exuberance about this aspect of our hobby while they were playing super smash brothers i dragged bob the man of honor the man of the evening and my buddies ryan bogner and ryan trisbiak to the table to play a game of a Bluxen. And let me tell you, a Bluxen is a fantastic game. All three of these guys are lifelong magic players, very, very smart people, very, very good game players who love love the complexity and the interaction of magic the gathering. So when I put a Bluxen on the table, I was a little worried that this game that just has, you know, little foxes on cards and you know one through thirteen numbers and some wild cards might not be enough for them. But boy they got really into it. In a Bluxen called Linko here in the US if you want to find it. Uh, you are just trying to play all the cards in your hand. On your turn, you can play one of the 13 cards in your hand or two of the 13 cards or three or as many as you want to, provided that all the cards are of the same rank. So they're all 1s or all 2s or all 5s or all 12s, whatever. Or that you include wild cards in that. And in doing so, if you happen to play the same number of cards of a higher rank than the cards that somebody else recently played, you can, what I call a them. I'm sure there's a word for it, but a them and either take their cards or make them discard those cards and draw new cards. And at the end of the game, when somebody plays the last card that they have in their hand or when the deck runs out. Uh, each player gets one point for every card they have on the table in front of them, cards that they've played and managed to keep around, and loses one point for each card in their hand. If it sounds simple, it is, but boy, it is a brilliant, brilliant game. I've played it 60 times in the last year and a half, and I adore it. I gotta tell you, it's designed by Michael Kessling and Wolfgang Kramer, and it's published by Robin Berger. If you don't recognize those names, you should. Uh, Wolfgang Kramer has four Spiel des Jahres Awards, the German Game of the Year Award for Tikal in 1999 with Michael Kessling. El Grande, Alf Osch, and Heimluck Co. I hope I pronounced those correctly. Michael Kessling has a Spiel des Jahres for Taurus and Tikal. Both of these guys have gone back-to-back Spiel des Jahres award winners. These are super prominent game designers over in Germany. And *Abluxen* is great work. I imagine many people would say that Tikal is their best collaborative effort. But I really, really love *Abluxen*. So, very good game. You should check it out. And thanks to Ryan and Ryan and Bob for taking time at a bachelor party to hang out and play a stupid card game. We actually played it twice, and uh, everyone had a great time. It was very nice. The next day of the trip, I went to Chicagoland Games' Dice Dojo, which is one of my very favorite game stores in the city of Chicago. And uh, they have an enormous game wall. They have an enormous play area, all sorts of stock. The staff is amazing. The owner, Lex, is an incredible guy. It is one of the premier stores in the U.S. It's one of those places that you get there, and it just feels like home. It was a great day outside. The doors were open. There was a breeze going through the game area. I set up and did some playtesting of Solium Infernum, the game that I'm designing with Dirk Niemeyer at Artana, uh, my full-time job and did some playtesting with Ryan and with Osher. Uh, Ryan, of course, the same Ryan Bogner from last night. They played Abeluxin. And with Asher, who is a up-and-coming game designer in Chicago, both of these guys are brilliant. They're just very, very smart people. And how wonderful it is to play games, and especially to playtest, with people who are just so smart and so talented and are so on point with their feedback, with the way they interact with games, how they try to break systems and give feedback about the systems while they play. Really useful playtests, so... Solium Inferno is going to be on Kickstarter, I think, next year from Artana. We're still working very hard on that game. More about that later as we go along. But I do want to say thank you to Lex and the Dice Dojo staff for letting us stay there, for letting me print out a bunch of cards and make the playtest kit. That was really nice of them. And uh, that's also where I bought Via Nebula. The next day, it was Bob's wedding, but it was a brunch wedding. which meant that we had the entire afternoon to hang out and do what we wanted. And wrapped around watching some movies and watching some TV, we ended up playing Betrayal at House on the Hill, uh, it was me, Jacob Perlman. Jacob is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy. Love getting to play games with Jacob. And with Dan with Rose, too, and Amy was there. So the five of us played Betrayal at House on the Hill, uh, designed by Bruce Clasco, developed by Mike Selenker's team at Wizards of the Coast, and also by Rob Davio. And we got haunt number one, the mummy haunt. I've had this one before. Uh, Dan was the traitor, and Dan had to pick a place for the mummy, and the mummy had to chase down the girl and then defend himself from us trying to attack him with a book and then make it out of the, make it out of the house, or at least get back to his little tomb and then get out of there. Dan won in two rounds after the haunt was revealed because, although he was rolling three dice for movement, his book said if he rolled a zero or a one, he could move anywhere in the house he wanted to, and he did that twice in a row. And boy, let me tell you, when you're facing a super scary mummy with preternatural movement powers who can just jump through the house however he wants to and can come kill you and take all your stuff and you have nothing to do about it, it is very difficult as the quote-unquote good guys, to win a game of Betrayal. So kudos to Dan for that. Even Dan didn't really want to take credit for it. He's like, you know, I just rolled dice, and it was good for me. But he was the one who had to roll those dice. He made his choices, and he earned that win. Always nice to play Betrayal. For a long time, Betrayal was my very favorite game. It still is one of my favorites. I think Mega Civilization has probably topped it by now. But I still adore the game, and I cannot wait for the expansion to come out in October, just here in next month and now, I guess. Very nice to play one of the first games that I played with Dan and Rose, again with Dan and Rose, and to experience that. So, Betrayal at House on the Hill, check it out if you haven't. Very fun experience. Speaking of Betrayal, I had an interesting conversation at the wedding with somebody that I met who just happened to be a board game player and just happened to be from Dallas and I'd never met before. And she said that her husband, who was also sitting at the table with us at the reception, wasn't really a board game fan. So they looked for something they could play with six players on a houseboat on a vacation that they took together. And their choice was Betrayal at House on the Hill. And it occurred to me that... It is an absolutely perfect choice for six people, one of whom isn't really a competitive gamer and wants to have a cooperative experience, but doesn't want to be alpha-gamed and talked over on a houseboat for a day. So they played Betrayal a few times, and that's really cool. I assume they also swam and did normal houseboat things, but neat to hear that that game fits in that scenario. That was really cool. After Betrayal, we spent the rest of the night playing games of Codenames until Rose had to go to bed. Uh, Codenames by Vlada Shavadal and CGE. I talked about it last week, I think is a little deduction game, team's game, where I'm trying to give you clues about a five by five grid of words, It's kind of like taboo or password. And if you are the person who's guessing, you're trying to figure out which words they are, based on my clue that is one word and one number, which is like the clue I'm giving you and then the number of words on the board that are associated with it. I love codenames. I still love codenames. I can't get enough of codenames. This was a very interesting codenames experience. I uh, played with Dan and Rose, and Dan and Rose have been playing board games longer than I have, and jacob has been playing board games longer than I have. for that matter, I think Amy's probably been playing board games for longer than I have. And there are alpha gamers, people who need to have control over how a game is played in a cooperative situation. And there are puppet masters that are people who need to control the process through which the game is played. So, like, if you would draw a card, I would draw the card for you and hand it to you. Sort of stealing agency in small ways that detract from the tactile experience or, like, moving your pieces around the board or adding up your score for you or telling you what your options are on your turn. Things that don't actually prevent you from playing, but do prevent you from doing the parts of the game that are fun, the little little side parts that still make it enjoyable to push things around and do those things. I am an alpha gamer in cooperative situations, and as it turns out, I'm also a rules lawyer and an apologetic one, I don't mean to be one, but I've played Codename so many times and I've played it with so many different people that I'm used to sort of being the person at the table who knows how to play. Well, Rose and I disagreed a little bit on what constitutes correct clues. as it turns out, the rulebook tells you to sort of decide for yourself what things are legal in your game and what things aren't. So Rose asked, and I jumped to the conclusion, like, well, of course, this is and this isn't, etc. And she called me out for basically making that call for the whole table. And it occurred to me that, well, first off, she was right for saying that. And it occurred to me that there's like a third kind of something that I hadn't considered yet. And as it turns out, I may have identified like a different way that a player can be an alpha gamer. And that is controlling the experience the players have while they play i.e. setting the table in a certain way make sure the rules are followed in a certain way and not quite rules ordering but like making sure that from the start of the game everything goes the way that you expect it to go and i think that rose and i are both that kind of person and we clash in a way that i didn't expect and i've been thinking of it i can remember us clashing in that way previously when i used to live there um but it was kind of funny to experience that and sort of be made aware of that thing happening. So that was Codenames. Great game, as always. Amy won, I think, every game she played because she's great at it, and I did not win very many games that I played, but that's okay. I've got one last game that I played this week to talk about, and that is TAC, of course, by James Ernest from the world of Pat Rothfuss. I've talked about TAC before on the show. I played in the TAC online tournament at playtac.com, and I played in the first round, which is two games against the same opponent where you're playing one game is white, one game is black. You can imagine like a chess tournament, and there are points that are awarded based on how you win. To a maximum of 5 points, to a minimum of 1 if you win, and of course 0 points if you lose. I lost 10 nothing in both games. I played really poorly, made a bunch of mistakes. And it probably comes for two reasons. First, when I play tack, I don't necessarily think about winning. I have a, call it an abusive relationship with true abstract games, abstracts that have no hidden information, and that I grew up thinking that being good at chess meant that you were smart and that being bad at chess meant that you were stupid. And I never was able to get my brain, even now, I've never been able to get my brain out of this sense that if you play chess poorly, it means that you're dumb and the other person is better than you are. And that's really frustrating. And if a game is like chess, and that it's an abstract, and that you have two players, and that there's no randomness, et cetera, there's no theme, I, if I don't control it, will go back to that emotional place where I think about myself as stupid the whole time that I play. And I don't believe that I'm stupid, I mean I don't believe I'm the smartest person in the world, but I'm certainly capable of sitting and enjoying an abstract game, I do it all the time. So when I play TAC, I try to make sure that I don't let myself approach that mental state where I'm putting so much pressure on myself to win. I'm just trying to explore the game and see what I can find while playing. When I played it so many times with James, I got better at it very quickly because I was playing it a bunch all in a row, watching a very much better player take turns and do things, and that's kind of how you get good. But in this TAC tournament, I was just watching another player play. and It's online, so there's no sense of real communication. I'm not watching him play. I'm not watching what he thinks about I just see the pieces move on my screen. So I lost. And the second reason I think I lost is this. I don't get nervous very often, especially not in social situations. I tend to do pretty well when I'm meeting people. I tend to do pretty well when I'm playing games with strangers, etc. But for whatever reason, I've never been a particularly good tournament player of games. With the notable exception of Magic the Gathering, in some situations... Oftentimes I choke when it's time to play games with actual stakes, even if those stakes are like $5 or a free gift certificate or who's going to buy the next round of beer. I'm not sure why that happens to me. I get this emotional lockup where I start thinking about how poorly I'm going to do. I start thinking about the fact that I'm thinking about the fact that I'm thinking about the fact, et cetera. And that definitely happened here with TAC, and I hadn't had that happen in a while. So I'm going to try to explore that a little more in round two, which happens this week, and hopefully still maybe make it into the second round if I can win the rest of my games. But it was super interesting to... First off, be in a tournament environment and play a game with stakes and to know that you can't just you know, randomly take back rules, etc. That felt good because that feels like playing in a Magic tournament, which I hope to do more of soon, with Kaladesh coming out soon, the new Magic set, which was really cool. But it was also disheartening to know that I went back to that emotional place where I just couldn't get things together mentally well enough to play well. So you're never sure, at least I'm never sure, if I lost because I played poorly. Did I play poorly because I'm bad? Did I play poorly because I psyched myself out? Did my opponent just play very well and beat me? There's no real way to know that without enough data, so kind of beat myself up a little bit about it. But I'm really happy that I played, it, and I'm going to keep playing and force myself into that situation. Also, Andrew Christopher Enriquez, my best friend, is also playing in this tournament, and he also lost 10-0. Sorry, Ace, for calling you out. So maybe we'll match up against each other, and wouldn't that be fun? That's it for Games for the Week. It's a short show, so if you're looking forward to 30 minutes, I apologize for that. But have a couple things to talk about before we are done. I got Mexica in the mail today, which is actually the third game in the series. It starts with Tikal from Michael Kassling and Wolfgang Kramer, and it looks beautiful. It's a reprint from Yellow Games with new plastic pieces and cardboard tokens. And I'm going to take it with me on this trip that I'm taking to St. Louis this weekend to Jamie Stegmeier's Design Day. Jamie Stegmeyer is the guy who runs Stonemaier Games, publisher of Scythe and Viticulture between two cities, and he hosts a once-annual uh, in September design meetup for 50 or 60 or 70 designers just a one-day event where you can take games and playtest them. I'm taking Solium Infernum, which I'm working on with Dirk, and Chronicle Stone Age, which Rob is working on with Dirk, and I'm going to test those games, and I'm also going to have a chance to see friends that I haven't seen in a while, and I'm really looking forward to it. So you guys will hopefully hear more about that next week when I do my report. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Episode 3 of JR Plays. Please click subscribe if you haven't already. I really appreciate your listening to the show, and if you feel like sharing it with others, I would really appreciate that too. Come back next week for Episode 4, and until then, enjoy your games.